want to encourage you now to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. This week we will be taking a break from our book of uh, John. We'll be returning to it next week as we've been studying verse by verse through that text. But this week we want to look at Matthew 21. It is a particular parable that happens at the last week of the Lord Jesus' life. He tells this parable on a Wednesday, the Wednesday before Good Friday. And it is one of a trilogy of parables that he tells in the hearing of the religious leaders implicating them, a prophetic parable regarding the future. Matthew chapter 21, and we begin our reading in verse 33. The word of God reads, Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vine vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine growers? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, Did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our Father, once again, we come boldly before your throne of grace. We ask, O oh Father, that you would open our eyes, that we might see great and mighty things from thy word. You would illumine our eyes by your Spirit, and you would guide us, O oh Father, that we might know 
and realize, O oh Father, the opposition that your son faced during this last week of his life. That, Father, our reverence, our gratitude and appreciation of his sacrifice for our sins might be all the more greater. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a man named Sir Edmund Hillary, another one named Tenzi Norgay, who 50 years ago had succeeded in climbing Mount Everest, that 29,000-foot mountain, well-known, well-renowned. Nepal lifted its tight restrictions on the climbing of that legendary mountain, and by 2006, there were some... 2,700 folks who had reached the summit of the world's tallest mountain. Some would shell out tons of money, upwards of $60,000 or more, simply to have the privilege of climbing. And it became an expedition that many had great ambitions of climbing. The result of all of the Tourism that would come because of people who would endeavor to climb and would endeavor to shell out tens of thousands of dollars. In order to climb this mountain, the commercial influx had had its wake of the erosion, though, of some of the traditional moral code when it came to mountaineering. And in the rush to the top, amateurs, amateurs would pay a small fortune and do whatever it took to climb the mountain, and that included abandoning other climbers. And there was a man named David Sharp, who not long ago in 2006, he was 34 years old, he made it to the top all by himself. He was from Cleveland, he was an engineer. On the way back down, however, he ran out of Oxygen, and he had to lay down. And he laid down there on the mountain as he watched 40 other climbers climb, passing him by. They were too eager to achieve their goal, to take a chance, to even offer him some of their oxygen, and he froze to death. Ed Vistris, who was a very accomplished climber, who had scaled 14 of the world's 8,000-meter peaks, said, unfortunately, there are those who say, it's not my problem. I spent all this money, and I'm going to the summit. Because there's, you see, a very small window of time when you can do such things and it becomes crowded and the attitude that is produced among climbers is that whatever it takes I'm going to the summit even Edmund Hillary who climbed it first said on my expedition there was no way you'd have a man left under a rock to die but that is what happens you see when there is the ambition that ambition to do whatever it takes 
the corruption that comes and the calamity that selfish ambition comes and greed replaces the value of the lives of people that comes. And that is what we saw last week, even in our study of the text of Scripture, when Jesus came to the temple that very first time and he cleansed the temple of the mercenaries that were there, of the money changers that were there. He cleansed the temple. He made a whip and drove them all out. Why? Because, you see, the Sadducees and the Pharisees had turned the temple into a money-making business. They could care less about the spiritual welfare of the people. But now, the Passover had come again. That incident that we looked at last week was at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Because, you see, in John chapter 2, when we looked at that, it was the second The second account, right after he had come out of the wedding of Cana, in which he went into the temple and his very first public event. And that was the clearing of the temple. And now we come to this particular text at the end of his life, at the very last week of his life. And the other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record a second cleansing of the temple which Jesus comes during, once again, the Passover. Now, the Passover, as a reminder, was uh, the greatest event in the mind of the Jew. It was the commemoration, the remembrance of the greatest deliverance of Israel out of Egypt by the hand of God. For when they were in bondage for Many, many years in Egypt, God, by His hand, through the leadership of Moses, led them out. And on that last plague that God sent upon all of Egypt, He sent an angel of death. And the Israelites were commanded that if they were to be spared of the death that would come to their firstborn son, they were spread lamb's blood on their doorposts and the angel of death would see that and the angel of death would pass over their homes but the Egyptians had no such provision and the angel of death brought death to the firstborn of all of the sons of that land and God delivered them out of Egypt by his hand and since that time the Passover has been celebrated Since that time, the Passover, which is one day followed by the Feast of Booze, sometimes they'll say that the Passover is encompassing of that entire week. Every male Jew, age 12 and older, would be required to go to Jerusalem. And throngs of people would come to Jerusalem. The population, which was was, uh, traditionally some 100,000 to 300,000, Josephus, the historian, would say it would swell upwards of a million people. People would be crowding all over the place, bringing their sacrifices to the temple. And as we look at this particular event, at the end of his ministry, during the last week of his life, we look at the time that he enters into Jerusalem during the Passover Celebrated on the 10th of the month of Nisan and the 14th day, the lamb would be slaughtered. It's interesting because on the 10th of the month, that was the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the people were hailing him and they were waving palm branches and they would be spreading their coats on the road as he rode into Jerusalem. 
And that was an act that was reserved for royalty to put your robe out onto the road as he rode in. And they would be shouting, Hosanna, which was a psalm or, or an acclamation of praise, meaning save now. With messianic fervor because there, were, there was still the hope that maybe this might be the time. Maybe this might be the time that the Messiah, Jesus, would reveal himself and overcome Rome. That was on the Monday. And on Tuesday, he cleansed the temple once again. He commandeered it and he began in an act of grace to preach and teach about the judgment that was to come. He cleared the temple because of the people's irreverence towards God as they were selling animals and exchanging money, turning it into a mercenary type of environment when it was to be a house of prayer. And you can imagine, you can imagine as he drives them out, how it would infuriate the Sadducees, how it would cause an uproar among the Pharisees who had heard him for all of these years. They would be incensed. And Jesus knew what the result would be. He knew that there was time. His time was coming. The time of his death was coming. And only two days from that Tuesday and Wednesday would he be brought to trial at night and crucified on Friday. And yet he still gave them the truth that they needed to hear. Now, in the context, Jesus tells this parable on Wednesday, two days before his crucifixion, and on Sunday he would arise from the dead. The parable that we look at here in this text is a prophetic parable. It is a prophetic parable of what they would do in two days' time, where the chief priests, the elders, and the Pharisees would put him to death. And the elders and the chief priests would indict themselves, even within this parable. So let's look at the text now as we look at verse 33 of the parable and the context. For the parable says in verse 33, listen to another parable, Jesus says. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Now, this was a very wealthy landowner, and such things were not uncommon at all. He plants a vineyard, and he made way that these vineyards, this was very common. And the way that vineyards were made were, was that they would take uh, the hillsides, and they would terrace them, and they would put vineyards there, or groves of some type. And there were a number of hills in Israel, and so this was not uncommon at all. The flatlands would be made into fields, and... Grain would be planted there, but on the hillsides, they would have vineyards. Very common, and vineyards were a mainstay of the economy. A lot of wine would be grown, and he would go there and put up, a, it says there that he put up a wall in order to protect the vineyard from marauders or from animals, and he put up a tower, and that was again to guard the vineyard that was there. He built a, a tower and that the workers would be able to stay, the workers would be able to keep their tools they would be able to oversee whatever was going on there. Marauding bandits would be able to be forewarned that this was a place that would be protected. And he rented it out to some vine growers. 
He rented it out to some vine growers. And there was a contract that was usually drawn in which they would pay him a particular portion. He would come and collect. He entrusted the vineyard to them. And he went on a journey. It would be a long journey. And so we look at the landowner and what he did in verse 34. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. Now, again, this was a very common thing. The people in the crowd who were listening to Jesus would nod their heads, I'm sure, to say, you know, we understand this is how things are done. At a certain time, the landowner would require payment. They would pay their rent or a portion of whatever was contracted to pay the landowner. But these vine growers were corrupt. They were greedy, they were devious, they were murderous tenants. Apparently they made a certain substantial amount of profit such that it fueled their greed. They not only wanted to keep the profits, but they, the text says, beat one of the slaves. Another one they killed outright. And if it was a stoning, which was a third individual, it was a Jewish stoning, he too would have died. Mark records that these slaves were not all coming at once. They came in succession, but the vine growers were utterly corrupt. They could have made a good living. They could have assumed a, a good standard of living. They didn't have to be greedy, but they wanted the vineyard. They wanted the vineyard and they used extreme violence in order to obtain something that was not there. It wasn't just, you see, a non-payment issue. It was an issue of premeditated murder. They beat, they killed the slaves of the owner and the landowner in his grace decides to send his son. Verse 37. The text says, afterwards, he sent his son saying, they will respect my son. When the vine growers saw their son, saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. When the vine growers saw the son, they recognized him. That's what the text indicates. They didn't mistake him as one of the slaves and they plotted to kill him. Premeditated, planned, they thought about it, they discussed it. And in their thinking of inheriting the land, how could that be? Well, it was in that time that it was possible for a tenant farmer to lay claim to the land for himself if the landowner was gone for three years, because it would be presumed that the landlord was either dead or had lost interest. And so here, the air was coming, the sun was coming. And in the mind's eye of the vine growers, they perhaps were thinking, well, if he had had trouble, he would have come himself, but the sun is coming, so we don't know what happened to the landowner, and he's been gone for a long time. If we just, if we just bump off the, the sun, then we can inherit the land. And so, they plan. And in their greed and their desire, they plotted and they murdered the son. This is a moral thing. The corruption was just as bad as some terrible soap opera. Because though, the exceeding grace of the landowner sending so many envoys, some have looked at this particular account and 
said, no, no. Maybe the, maybe the writers exaggerated what Jesus said. People wouldn't do something as terrible as this. Maybe this was an add-in. Maybe somehow the text of Scripture is just too wild of a story to be even written this way. Jesus probably didn't tell it this way, some would say. But that is the very point of the story. The very point of the story is that there is a sharp contrast made that rivets the crowd, that rivets the crowd to say there is a problem. The wickedness of the vine growers and the graciousness of the landowner to put up with them and to send his son. And so, in that, Jesus asks a question of them, verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the vine growers? That's what he asks the crowd. And you can imagine, you see the Pharisees and the Sadducees standing there, ready to parade their own self-righteousness and say, we've got the right answer. We've got the right answer. And this is what he should do. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay them the proceeds at the proper season. Patting themselves on the back, as it says. That's common what Jesus does. He poses a question. He poses a question and allows people to come to a conclusion that he guides them to. They're probably very proud of the fact that they answered correctly. Jesus says to them this. Did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and is it not marvelous in our eyes? Psalm 118.22 is where he drew the conclusion from, and he relates it to himself. It was a well-known psalm that he quotes. He himself was the stone that the builders, Israel, had rejected. You see, just two days earlier, this was Wednesday, just two days earlier, he had ridden on a donkey into Jerusalem with the people hailing him and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when the people call him the son of David, that was a messianic title that they were giving to him. They were ascribing to him, hoping that he would be the Messiah of the people. And when the Pharisees heard that, in Luke 19:38, the text says, when the people were crying out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The religious leaders knew what they were saying. And in verse 39, it says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Don't let them call you the Messiah. Already the religious leaders had already rejected Jesus. They didn't want Jesus to be called with a messianic title. They didn't want Jesus to be acknowledged among the people as the Savior or the Redeemer or anything of that sort. There was already animosity by the middle of his ministry between his public and his private ministry. They had already ascribed him in Matthew chapter 12. The works that he had done to Satan. 
The Apostle Peter declared in Acts chapter 4, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles there, Acts chapter 4. When Peter preaches to thousands, when the church had been born, in Acts chapter 4, verse 10 through 12, Peter says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which came the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. If we look at the parable, the meaning in retrospect is clear. The parable is not only a prophetic parable that looks back to the, to look to the future, but it looks to the past. The landowner, the landowner is God. The landowner is God and the vineyard, the vineyard is Israel. Isaiah 5, 7 says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And again, another Old Testament text, it casts Israel as the vineyard of the Lord. They were to be the blessing to the world. More broadly, it applies to the kingdom, God's kingdom. And the vine growers, they were the religious leaders of Israel. Those who had rejected Christ or the unbelieving world as a broader application. And the unbelieving world in general. God had entrusted, you see, his people to these vine growers, the religious leaders, who were to lead them in a way that would be godly and holy, that would be righteous, that would turn to God. But in their corruption, in their greed... They had turned the temple and they had turned the ways of God to that of a profiteering and corrupt system of works, righteousness, of legalism that they might somehow gain for their own means. And over the course of Israel's history, God sent his prophets These slaves, as the landowner would send the slaves to collect, he called on his prophets to call his people to repent, to turn to him. And from Moses all the way to John the Baptist, for some 1,500 years, there was a continual call as God would send his prophets to come, to call the people to repentance, to turn from living their own way to a life of holiness, to come and live in a way that is righteous. And from time and time again, the prophets were disregarded. They were abused. They were killed. Jewish tradition held that Isaiah had been sawn in two with a wooden saw. From Scripture, we know that Jeremiah was thrown into a pit of slime. And tradition held that eventually he was stoned to death. Ezekiel was rejected. Elijah and Amos had to run for their lives. And Micah was smashed in the face by those who refused to hear his message in 1 Kings 22-24. Zechariah was actually murdered in God's own temple. 
And Old Testament history bore witness to the murderous hearts and the wickedness that was built up and resulted in the death of many of the prophets, eventually culminating in the death of the Lord Jesus himself. Hebrews 11.35 tells us, Others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better inheritance or resurrection. The others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, being afflicted, being ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Unquote. The prophets of the Old Testament, the witnesses of the New, continually and repeatedly mistreated, abused, and killed. And today even there are many who die for the sake of testifying for our Lord Jesus. And it's been said that more people have died for their faith in the last 100, 120 years than all of the history of the church combined. Just as Jesus had alluded to himself in this parable, it would come to pass in a few days. So we look at this parable and it's easy for us to say, well, my, my, they were corrupt. I'd never, I'd never do such a thing. And that's what the religious leaders would say. That's what the religious leaders would say. If you turn your Bibles just a couple of pages over, Matthew chapter 23, verse 29. For it says in verse 29, in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus condemns the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, in verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 27. In 29, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? You see, the Pharisees and the scribes, they made these monuments. They made these monuments in recognition of those prophets that existed in the past. For they venerated people like Isaiah and Jeremiah or Ezekiel or people who came because they had the Old Testament scriptures. They had the Old Testament scriptures and there were the tombs. And what they would do is they would, they would adorn them. They would decorate them to show that they were not like their forefathers. To show that they would never do such a thing. Now, how often would it be like us to say, well, we would never do something like that? We watch on the news all of the time something that would happen, some calamity that would happen. Somebody that has gone off the deep end and had planned and plotted something. And we say, boy, I don't think I'd ever do something like that. Yet it is by God's grace that we are not 
a certain way. It is by the gracious hand of God that if it weren't by God's grace, we too could be in those shoes. For everyone was an ex-something. For not by the grace of God, God restraining us and drawing us to Himself, we too could very well be like others. Jesus here, He pronounces judgment on these who would say, well, we wouldn't ever do anything like that. And yet, He says to them, verse 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter them like dust. (laughs) They had already, they had already corrupted the truth of God. They had already corrupted the purpose of the temple. They had already corrupted the way of salvation. They had already led many astray. And the privilege of being the ones to lead the people of God, God's vineyard, the privilege of bearing the testimony of God to a world that is so much needed, the privilege of recognizing Christ the Messiah would be taken away from them because they had become corrupt. And this was partially fulfilled This was partially fulfilled when the priesthood was destroyed in 70 A.D. When they were conquered by Rome and there's never been a religious priesthood among the Jews like that since that time. For they had turned the worship of God into a commercial endeavor and there was no fruit. They were leading the people into a system of works righteousness. The judgment of God came upon all Judgment of God will come as well upon all who would reject Him. What was the response of the religious leaders? Verse 45. Oh, they knew. They knew that Christ was speaking of them. They understood and they were incensed. They were incensed. This was a trilogy. This is the second of three parables that Jesus tells on that Wednesday before His death. This was the second, and it implicated their own sinful negligence. They spoke. They spoke, saying, This is what the vineyard owner should do. He should come and take care of those corrupt, wicked, wretched vine growers and replace them. They, though, implicated themselves. They sought to seize him, but. They were fearful of the people. They wanted the pleasure of the people. They wanted to be in the good graces of people and hide their own sin. So shortly after, the next day, they were in the midst already of a plot that they had begun. Shortly thereafter, on Thursday night, they would arrest Jesus and they would condemn Him to death. They were so hardened They were so hardened, not unlike many today. No matter what the evidence that you do to present, no matter what the signs may say, no matter what the risk may be, no matter what the Word of God so clearly says, no matter what warnings they may receive, people in their own sin may want whatever they want at whatever cost it may be. Just as those who endeavor to climb Mount Everest and pay tens of thousands of dollars 
They go and they want what they want despite a dying man who is laying there without enough oxygen to breathe. What's worse is that when people are presented with what is true, the response often is not that of repentance or a contrite spirit or a heart that is broken over the guilt. Oftentimes, the response is the same as these leaders. Anger or hostility or resentment or aggression or opposition. Just like yesterday, we were going door to door and just introducing ourselves to the neighborhood and there was one house that had a sign that said, no soliciting, no witnessing, no kidding. Some are dead set. They don't want to hear. They don't want anyone to come to them with good news of the gospel of grace. They want to continue in unbelief. They want to continue in their own ways. There are many others, you see, who are like that. And there are many others, on the other hand, who take the grace of God for granted. And they look and they say, look, God hasn't done anything or God won't do anything. If I live the way that I live, that'll be fine. God will look over that. He's such a loving God. His grace extends forever. I won't face the judgment of God. I won't face that kind of calamity. But God's judgment will come. R.C. Sproul, on his first day of teaching a class of 250 college freshmen, he tells this account of what he did with the assignment of three term papers. One was due in September, one was due in October, one was due in November. And he clearly stated at the very beginning there would be no extensions except for medical reasons. And at the end of September, he had a paper due. And out of those 250 students, some 225 dutifully turned in their paper on time, while 25 remorseful students fearfully came to him and said, We are so sorry. We didn't make the proper adjustments from high school to college, and we we promised to do better next time. And he, they asked for grace, and he bowed to their pleased for mercy and gave them an extension, but he warned them not to be late the next month. To the end of October, the second term paper was due and they came around and almost 200 students turned in their papers while 50 of them turned and showed up empty-handed. Oh, please, they begged. It was homecoming weekend and we ran out of time. And so he relented. And he warned them, this is it, no excuses. Next time you'll get an F. The end of November came and only a hundred out of those 250 turned it in on time. The rest told R.C., well, we'll get it done soon. Professor replied, sorry, it's too late now. You get an F. And the students, they were all upset. And they said, that's not fair. Okay, he said, you want justice? Here's what's just. You'll get an F for all three papers that were late. That was the rule, right? Students, you see, were upset. And reflecting upon that, he thought to himself, they had taken mercy for granted. They had taken the grace for granted. They assumed it. And when justice fell, they were unprepared. They were shocked. They felt that it was not fair. 
And it grieves the heart of God, you see, because when we take the grace of God, when we take the mercy of God for granted, we choose to live like how we desire to live rather than living by God's word, then we take it for granted. We presume upon the grace of God. And the religious leaders of that day, I'm sure they presumed as well. They presumed in their own greed that if they had this, God would be merciful. In fact, what they presumed was that we are children of Abraham and were born into the family of God. We, by inheritance, are children and the chosen people of God. Therefore, we're part of the kingdom. Therefore, we're part of the kingdom. And that can happen to us. We're part of the kingdom. Well, I live like how God wants us to live. We hear the word of God over and over. And when we don't respond, the callousness of our heart continues to harden. And when we don't change, when we don't change our ways, we don't follow God. And we say God will overlook that. The time and the day will come for God's judgment. For we will all be judged for our deeds. Not in condemnation, but in reward or loss thereof. What will God say when He comes? What will God say when He comes if it was just two days away? Like Jesus gave this parable and in two days He would die on the cross. Would we be able to stand before God, proud of how we lived our life, feeling as if we had lived it for the Savior? Or will we allow our own ambitions, our own desires, our own self-centeredness to say, you know what, my goals are even more important than one who needs oxygen. Because I want what I want. May we ever be sensitive to God and His Word, knowing that many, many have heard. Few, perhaps, will live in obedience We desire not to be people who have a hardened heart, who give lip service to God, but to live in a way that pleases Him. For He is coming. He is coming. And He will look at our lives and we hope that He will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, in this week, traditionally, O Father, called Holy Week throughout church history. In this week, O Father, also called Passion Week, we remember the suffering of your Son for our sins. And Father, it is for your glory that he died. It is also, O Father, that we might receive salvation. We pray, O Father, that we might live in a manner worthy of the calling which we have received, knowing, O Father, that we were redeemed, not by gold or silver or precious stones, but by the blood of your Son. And may we live in obedience to your word, bringing glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.